You're listening to a podcast from Turners Hill Free Church. For more information and resources, visit turnershillfreechurch.org.uk. Some time ago, I had uh, the opportunity to share the gospel with a lady who was widowed. Uh, She was heartbroken, an elderly lady. And as I shared the gospel with her, actually over several occasions, something really weird happened. Um, It's not a terribly happy story to begin with. But um, I would talk to her about her own faith. She was kind of a nominal Christian, you know, growing up, going to church every now and then, Church of England. I talked to her about if she prayed, and she would say, well, I do pray, but I'm not sure if my husband can hear me or not. (laughs) I'm not sure if my husband can hear me or not. I talked to her about, um, you know, God loves you and he's, you know, wants to know you. And she would talk about how, do you think my husband's looking down on me? Do you think he's looking after me? I talked to her about heaven and hell and those things. And she would say, I'm sure my husband's in heaven. And I talked to her about, you know, good and judgment and evil and all that sort of thing. And she'd talk about what a lovely man her husband was. Her whole world revolved around her husband. And actually, to the extent that it stopped her from understanding or hearing the gospel. Isn't that remarkable? That is essentially, that story is really the heart of kind of what God's word is speaking to us about today. But really good things. She was married, had a wonderful marriage. She'd kind of, humanly speaking, done the right, you know, she'd given herself to her husband her whole life. You know, she poured out for her husband, all those things. So in that aspect of her life, it was all good. You know, she'd reaped the benefits of marriage. But the problem was, Jesus wasn't at the center of their lives. And so this good thing had actually become a barrier to her knowing and following Jesus. And that's really the the essence of what this passage is about, the essence of what I think God would say to us this morning, is that actually really good things, things that we value, we value deeply, actually, if we treat them as absolutes, Actually, they can become polluted and distorted and they can actually become barriers for us coming to faith, knowing God, deepening our faith and bearing fruit in our faith. So actually, to put it simply, Jesus has to be the most important thing in our lives. Isn't that true? That's simple, simple, right? Jesus is the most important thing. That's really, really what this passage is, is all about. Jesus is the most important thing. He has to be the center of our lives. And if he's not, then everything else becomes either empty or it can even become destructive. destructive. Jesus is the only absolutely good thing we have. Every other good thing is relative to him. So there we go. Is anything more important to you than Jesus? That's a record sermon. We're done. (laughs) (laughs) But that really really is it. I'm just going to break it down for you. the four ways this passage breaks it down for you. That's it. Is anything more important to you than Jesus? Um, that's the theme, I think, that's woven through here. Just to give you a bit of context of the passage, if you do this in your Bible study groups, there's a major break here, a major kind of section change in Luke's Gospel, uh, starting at verse 51. There's this very formal beginning around the time, you know, before Jesus, uh, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set his face. Luke is marking this kind of Here's a new section of my gospel. And he's portraying Jesus now in in his prophetic ministry. There are lots of references here to uh, 2 Kings chapter 2 and to the uh, 
uh, Elijah's ministry and the transition from Elijah to Elisha. So just something for you to pick up on in your own Bible study, maybe on Tuesdays or whatever. There's lots of references here. So he's talking about how um, uh, Jesus is a prophet. And these three people who come to Jesus afterwards kind of represent the different approaches, different responses people have to Jesus' message. But actually, aside from this bigger theme, there is this really important underlying theme. And these, these, the passage of scripture we've read contains probably some of the most offensive stuff in a worldly sense, even to us, you know, really offensive, especially to the first readers. Stuff that is made, meant to make you stop and go, okay, hang on. Am I really, is this really what I believe? Is this really what I'm about? So that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at, is anything more important to you than Jesus? So there are four things really, four kind of warnings, if you like, things that are good, but if they're in the wrong place, they can become more important to us than Jesus. And maybe we won't even notice. That's what the passage is sort of showing to us. Uh, they, they're four things that typically compete with us in, uh, to be the center of our lives. The first one, I think it's quite easy to spot. Uh, verses 52 to 55, Jesus sends out these messengers before him to prepare uh, a reception for him among the Samaritan towns uh, on his way to Jerusalem. And the Samaritan uh, villages that he's supposed to be going to reject his messengers and essentially reject Jesus because he's going to Jerusalem. There's this infighting. There's a, a kind of racial tension between the Jewish people and the Samaritan people. And because of that, when they were, they're quite willing to welcome Jesus, as we've seen in, in other parts of the gospel, if he's going to them. But when they find out he's going to Jerusalem, they're like, oh, he's not really interested in us. Something like that's happening. And so they don't welcome him. And then you've got James and John, the sons of thunder, sort of, dis- that's their nickname, this kind of bombastic, uh, guys. And this, this is why, probably, this kind of character, they're saying, they, they wouldn't welcome you, Jesus. Shall we call down fire from heaven? Another reference to Elijah, by the way. Shall we call down fire from heaven onto these people who've rejected you? And Jesus uh, rebukes them. Yeah, you know, often, like if you look at uh, paintings from the Renaissance and so on, there's pictures of John the disciple. He looks a bit like a 12-year-old girl. Have you seen those paintings? Yeah. <laughs> and this suggests he's probably not really like that. He's <laughs> son of thunder, I'm not really sure. Um, so... And Jesus rebukes them. And actually the word for rebuke here is the strongest word. It's the same kind of word used when Jesus rebukes demons or rebukes the storm. It's a strong word. So he's not just saying, oh, calm down, guys. He's saying, no, you've got it absolutely wrong. So what, is, what are we seeing here? There's actually a common thread with the three people that approach Jesus later. Actually, it's the power of ideals, principles, to distort our relationship with God. So these guys, because of the, the nationalism they've grown up in, we can put it like that, simply, it's a bit more complicated than that, because of the nationalism they've grown up in, they see the Samaritans as just purely the enemy, as a, as a foe to be defeated, to be overcome. They're probably not really sure why Jesus wants to travel through that region at all. They're just the enemy, and they are blind to God's purposes for these people. Actually, we know later on from the book of Acts that the Samaritans were incredibly responsive to the gospel. It was really fruitful ground for the gospel. Really amazing stuff happened there. But the disciples couldn't see it because they were blinded by a certain type of prejudice. And so they couldn't see Jesus' love for these people they just saw as other to themselves. They couldn't understand Jesus' love. And 
it distorts their understanding of God's mission so badly that they go from uh, love, the, the approach they should have, love, to calling down fire to destroy them from heaven. They have the opposite approach. So they've got this ideal at work, this principle at work. It's not from God. Uh, and it's coming before their understanding of Jesus. And it's distorting their relationship with God really, really badly. You see the picture? So what ideas, what principles can distort our relationship with God? If you go back to the 20th century, there's some pretty stark examples. In uh, 1934, the churches in Germany started a movement called the, imaginatively called the German Christians. And it was basically a movement to take Judaism out of Christianity and move Christianity in Germany into line with National Socialism, the Nazi Party. And so they went about, they went about, uh, they wanted to edit the Bible, take the Old Testament out and all the references to Judaism in the New Testament. They wanted to uh, sack or defrock all the priests who had any Jewish heritage in their line. They wanted to take out any sense of the Old Testament and all sorts of other things. I think some ridiculous percentage of churches, I mean, it was more than half of the churches in Germany officially signed up to this. Can you imagine that? It's crazy, isn't it? How how can you get it so wrong? How can you get it so wrong? Ideas have the power to distort. Politics has the power to distort. You see this particularly in North American Christianity, you know, the idea that to be a Christian, you have to vote one way, not another. It actually distorts the relationship with God. And people, and the, the danger is people can feel they're so on God's side. God, no, actually not that way around. That God is so on their side that there's never a doubt in their mind that he wouldn't back up their ideas. And it's the most dangerous type of thing because you're co-opting God to do the, the idea of God and his power and his authority to do the very opposite of what he would do. Like calling fire down on those he wants to save. So ideas, principles, Politics, denominations, racism can distort our relationship with God in a really, really dangerous way. Personal principles can distort our relationship with God. You know, it won't have anything to do with someone who has these types of manners or lives in this area or speaks in this way or uses these words. Uh, personal principles can destroy our relationship with God. But, you know, if you ever found yourself saying, Abby and I have a little joke, if you find yourself saying it's the principle of the thing, you ever think of that phrase? Ever had someone say that to you? You ever used it? <laughs> it's the principle of the thing. 99% guaranteed you are in the wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so there's this warning here in this passage. When principles get in the way of our relationship with God, it can distort, it can be very subtle, we can get so caught up in it, but we can actually find ourselves on the wrong side of things. The evidence of that, the thing you have to watch out for in your life, the evidence of that, when you're on the wrong side, when you're using principles instead of loving as God loves, instead of loving God and loving your neighbor, is the works of the flesh emerge. Division. Factions. Greed and envy. And especially anger, fits of anger. So if you find yourself getting angry with people over things, principles and ideas in your own mind, you find yourself ranting or raving or writing at length or or whatever it is, 
Actually, it's, that's the time to look in your heart and say, hang on a minute, have I co-opted God to my cause? Am I missing an opportunity to see the big picture, to put Jesus in the center? And what would Jesus have us do? What, is, what are the principles getting in the way of? They're getting in the way of love. That's, what it, that's part of what it means to have Jesus in the center, to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And that is something that cuts across all those boundary lines. It's like, you know, it gives us principles. It gives us beautiful ideas as well. But actually, just at the, you know, just at the moment when we think we can hold it, actually, it takes us in a different direction. It takes us into loving our enemies, crossing borders, hanging out with those that disagree with us, hanging out with those who are different from us and loving them and serving them. So that's our first challenge. And I just want to say to you, I don't want to give you any more specific examples than that, but it is... Are there principles in your life that are getting in the way of your relationship with God? Is there the evidence of that in your life? Is there anger or envy or um, division? And look for that and just examine it. Just bring it to God and say, God, what would you have me do with this? Have I gone wrong somewhere? Honestly ask him. Okay, that's the first one. Okay, what's the second thing that can kind of get in the way and do divert us from having Jesus as the most important thing. If you look at verse 57, you've got the the person who comes to Jesus and says to him, I will follow you wherever you go. I can't see much wrong with that, can you? That's saying, I I can't see much wrong. If someone comes to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. I think that's why I go, okay, there's a disciple, let's go. Like, There's nothing to say back to that person. But Jesus finds something. Actually, he sees something that's not really obvious. And, and it becomes apparent in his reply what the problem is with this person's approach. He tells him that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So what does that reply tell us? I mean, there must be different ways to read this, but this is what it seems to me. That actually, the emphasis is not, I will follow you wherever you go. It's, I'll follow you wherever you go. The emphasis is on the destination. On the destination, not on the person, Jesus. If you said to someone, I'll follow you wherever you go, you could mean, I love you so much, I want to be near you, it doesn't matter where you go, I'll be with you. Or it could be, I trust where you're going to take me and I want to go there too. And actually those two things are different. Do you see the difference? One is about a personal relationship. One is about a destination, a benefit. And those are really, really different things. So... It's a crude challenge, a very obvious challenge here. If you're following Jesus because you think you're going to get rich or famous or happy or you're going to have perfect health all the time, you're never going to have any challenges and life is going to be easy, no. (laughs) There we go. That's pretty easy. But there's a more subtle challenge as well. If you're following Jesus, if the benefits of your relationship with Jesus have become more important than your personal relationship with him, And those benefits can be very good ones. If your sanctification, that is, if you being more holy, more like Christ, is more important than Jesus, that doesn't sound so bad, does it, as I want to get rich and famous, I want to be holy. But actually, if wanting to be holy is more important than being with Jesus, that can distort your relationship. If wanting to serve people, wanting to love people, wanting to bear the fruit of the Spirit, Wanting to, is more important than Jesus. That can be a barrier. 
It can empty our relationship. It can make it sterile. Our relationship with God, as we've discussed over several weeks now, has to be fruitful. It has to be directed towards bearing fruit, both in terms of our own transformation, in terms of seeing people saved, in terms of transforming the world around us with the life of the Spirit. It's meant to be fruitful. But if you ask someone who is about to get married, if you said to them, why are you getting married? And they said, because I want to have lots of children. And you say, is that everything? Yeah, that's the only reason. You would probably be slightly worried about it. <laughs> If you ask someone who's about to get married and they said, because it's economically viable, you know, two people going into one, living in the same house, you know, you can put all your resources, you can do loads of things, you can work together and do more than you could if you're on your own. And you say, anything else? No, no, that's it. <laughs> that's your major reason. Yeah, that's the major reason. You'd be worried, wouldn't you? And it's the same in our relationship with God. The same with our relationship with God. Actually, I'll I share with this with you because it was in, this, in the week, the Lord really brought me personally up on this. You know, I found myself really tired and exhausted and just, and just for once, and that's slightly shocking to me to say that to you, just wanting to rest in his presence. And uh, the Lord brought to mind that moment when, you know, when you were uh, spending time with someone, like for me, this is like if I spend time with, with Abby, and there's just those times when it's just good to be with someone, isn't it? You don't have to talk a lot, you don't have to say a lot. You know, sometimes I just look at her and I think she's so beautiful. <laughs> it's true. And it's like, it's like uh, rest, it's like water, it's refreshing. A bit embarrassing. <laughs> it's true, though, it's true. That's a relationship. That's at the heart of a, of a marriage, actually. That, that, that being able to rest with one another. That just enjoyment of the other person. And then God said, you're supposed to have that with, with me too. Just that rest in my presence, that coming and just adoration, enjoyment. Be still. Remember my benefits. Rest in my pastures. Drink at cool, still waters. You know, that's so, so important. It's so important. And so, the second challenge is, do we want Jesus for himself? Do we want to follow him wherever he goes? Or we just want to follow him until he gets there? At the center, it has to be a personal devotion, delight, adoration of Jesus Christ. I, I love that about our church, this type of church that we're in. I love it. It goes back hundreds of years. After the Reformation, there's a group of people who were like, it's so important that we just come and enjoy God, that we spend time in his presence. So we don't just sing words about him, but we sing to him. We don't just pray in the abstract, but we pray to him. And we have this devotional relationship. It's so wonderful that we exist in that. And it's just good for us to be reminded how important that is. So just a direct question, do you have that? Have you ever had that? Has it gone cold? Have you become so focused on being fruitful for God that you're not spending time with him on your own? Not spending time in his presence. We should be overflowing with delight in him. Overflowing in his sweetness, his beauty, his grace, his kindness, his majesty. It should fill our minds. It should be like the heartbeat, shouldn't it? 
that drives all that fruitfulness. Without it, it's empty. It's dead works. It's just sterile. It's just weird. It's weird religion. Without the heart, it's beautiful and life-giving. So do we want Jesus? That's the... Number two. Third thing, then, that can become important to us uh, from verses 59 and 60. This really, really shocking phrase. And this man says, let me go bury my father. Um, and Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead. That is pretty... I'm guessing the guy's father must have died maybe that day or the day before because they would have buried him very quickly. So this man was mourning, but not just it's not just the emotional side, it's the duty side. In, the, in that culture, it was the highest kind of obligation, almost the highest duty, one of the, the best good works that you could do was to ensure the correct burial of the dead. This is an absolutely kind of society-undermining, shocking statement by Jesus. Let the dead bury their dead. It's insulting as well, isn't it? It's, it's insulting almost. And uh, one, one commentator says this, there's hardly one saying of Jesus which more sharply runs counter to law and piety and custom than does Luke, uh, Luke 9, verse 60. What is this Jesus saying? What is he saying? I think he's actually saying something that's very hard for us to hear. I don't mean hard as in like we don't like it, but I think hard for us to understand in our culture. He's talking about our duty to God. Now, we live in a society that doesn't really understand duty terribly well at all. And that's for lots of complicated reasons. It's just part of the kind of cultural atmosphere we live in. And some of those reasons are good and some of those reasons are bad. But in our culture, duty is almost like a, like a bad word. You know, that if you do something dutifully, I mean as in you didn't really mean it. <laughs> that's what we, that's how we use that word, almost, isn't it? I did, I did something in a dutiful fashion, means, uh, it was kind of insincere. Jesus is highlighting our duty to God, our obligation, and how our obligation to God far, just puts all our other obligations into the shade. You know, the, the picture that came to mind as I was trying to think of a way to explain it was, uh, if you've seen the film Chariots of Fire, anyone seen that film? Yeah. And everyone under 30 says no. <laughs> you have to, it's a really, it's a great film. It doesn't age. It's brilliant. Um, there's this moment when Eric Little is, uh, uh, world champion, Scottish, middle distance runner, refuses to compete in the final of, uh, his specialist event on a Sunday. He's a Sabbatarian. He doesn't believe in competing on a Sunday. And there's this scene in the film where they intersperse all the other competitors running for this prize and little in church reading from Isaiah in this thick kind of Scottish accent, which I won't try and impersonate, but I'll try and do some of the gravitas. All the people assembled in a kind of Scottish kind of Presbyterian, you know, dark colours and everything. And it's echoey church. And so you get the crowd cheering and all the people running and then silence and echoes. And he says, the nations are as a drop in the bucket. As a drop in the bucket. And he's talking of the importance of God. The islands are like dust on the scales. All other obligations, all other duties to nation, to family, to sporting prowess, to everything else. It's just Time, even the obligation to bury your dead father, 
tiny compared to your obligation to God. And we find that hard to process because we understand God's kindness and his patience, his long-suffering. He's our father, not our um, slave master. And yet, there is such a thing as a duty to a father. There is such a thing as an obligation to a father. And that's the bit that's hard for us to process. So here's the challenge for us. What obligations do we have that put all our competing obligations in the shade? What obligations to God do we have? We have the duty to worship him. We have the duty to worship him. We have the duty to gather together on a Sunday with God's people and praise him and hear his word and pray together and receive communion. And every other obligation Pales. We have the duty to pray to him. We have the duty to spend time with him, to welcome him and commit our day to him, or at least to thank him for the day gone by. Each day to spend time with him. He's our father. And it's, do you know what? Do you know, I feel slightly awkward saying this because it's so countercultural. But actually, I think it's okay to say that's our duty. Is this, am I, that it's our duty to do those things? To spend time with him every day? It's too heavy? It's our duty to worship God on a Sunday? To rest from our labors as well? That we can dedicate the day to him? I know, I know there are lots of places, churches where you'll get an easier ride on this subject. I'm really, really acutely aware of that. But I really just don't see a way around it. I, and, you know, God isn't like a, our obligations to God are not life-taking, are they? They're life-giving. He wants us to give to give those things to Him, so He can pour abundance in our lives. You know that wonderful phrase. You know when He speaks through the minor prophets, "Come, you know, uh, give give your tithe. See how I'll pour out the abundance of heaven." You know, there's no stinginess in God. He wants to free something in us by demanding obligation from us. And so there's this incomparable difference. So when it comes to, just to be straightforward with you, when it comes to conflicts of time, say, for example, on a Sunday morning, you know, my best friend is opening a shop and the grand opening is at 10.30 on a Sunday. There's no comparison. There's no comparison. Time with the family. You know, we take time. Uh, some of you will do like date night to ensure you have like time with your spouse or whatever, or you'll carve out time for your kids. But will you do take the same priority? Those things pale in comparison to your duty to spend time with God every day. And this isn't like, you know, it's ten times more important to spend time with God. This is like a billion times more important. Is he the most important thing in your life? Is he the most important thing in your life? So what places, I've given you some examples. Maybe the Holy Spirit will give you some more. Just weigh on your, your conscience, not accusation, just conviction. But there are places where there are duties to God that you're neglecting. 
but you need to... And it's probably because you're conflicted. That's, that's the point. It's probably because, like this man, I've really got this really important thing. It's really, really important. Shall I go and do that first? And you just you don't quite know what the right thing is to do. And Jesus is saying, no, it's very clear. The right thing to do is to put me first. Amen? Amen. Okay, number four. Okay, this is the one I found hardest to sort of sum up for you guys. So you'll excuse the sort of clumsy wording, but I hope the idea will come across. Um, so this one, actually kind of similar to the last one, you've got this guy who um, he comes to Jesus, uh, says, I'll follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. It's verse 61. There's an echo here. This is the, cre- the request that Elisha makes to Elijah when Elijah calls him to follow him. And Elijah says to Elisha, yes, <laughs> go and say goodbye to your family. And he goes and he prepares a feast and does all these things and says goodbye. And Jesus, instead of saying yes, says no. So there's this sense of deliberate contrast. Where, you know, Luke is making a note of all these connections to this Elijah-Elisha thing in Two Kings. There's this sense in which he, he's saying this calling to follow Jesus is even greater than the calling that Elisha had to follow Elijah. So that's, that's going on here. Um, but what does it represent in terms of things that might get in the way of our relationship with God? Things that might become import, more important. Well, I've called, I'm just going to apologize in advance for this. I've called this vicarious disobedience. Is that okay? That's your takeaway for this morning. (laughs) Vicarious disobedience. And what it means is, I guess what I mean is that we use our closest relationships as an excuse for disobeying God. So we disobey through others. We disobey through other people. So, to kind of continue what I was saying in the last point, you've got someone, you know, whose spouse isn't a Christian, and the wife or the husband is a Christian, and they'll come and they'll say, uh, I, you know what, I'm not, I'm not going to come to church for a while, because I think it's become a real stumbling block to my spouse. <laughs> I think, you know, they work all week, and they're tired, and they expect me to be there on a Sunday morning. It's tough, right? I'm not saying these are easy things. I'm not like, you just go, yay! <laughs> these are tough things. I actually, I remember uh, talking to a lady who uh, comes to church for quite a long time, and uh, she stopped coming for a, uh, just kind of sporadically. And um, you know, I went to see her, and and we had a chat. And basically, she said, you know, the reason I haven't been coming is my family have said that they can only see me on a Sunday morning. And in fact, I can only see my grandchildren on a Sunday morning. And I said to her, well, you have to tell them that that's not good enough. <laughs> And she said, but if I tell them that, they won't let me see them. And I said, I, I really don't think it will come to that. But I think you need to tell them that God is mo- the most important thing in your life. And she says, well, I'll work it out. You know, it'll just be for a while. And it hasn't just been for a while. <laughs> it's been about seven years, as far as I know. And complete, <laughs> completely walked away from faith. Uh, from active faith, anyway. The Lord knows our heart, of course. How about this one? This is one for me, like... Uh, when the kids first started school, we'd give them a little pep talk before school. And um, like I used to say to Sophie, uh, I hope you don't mind, Sophie. At the beginning of the day, I'd say, Sophie, remember three important things. Work hard. Yeah, work hard, be good. And most importantly, be kind was the third one, right? 
And then someday Sophie would come back and she would say something like, um, you know, such and such was really mean to me or such and such said that. And every now and then my anger would get this best of me. And I'd go, well, next time that happens, kick her in the shit. (laughs) 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 Or Nathan, like, you know, sometimes just occasionally boys are boys and he gets pushed around and he comes back a bit sad. So such and such pushed me today. And I said, well, just put, you know, big lad, Nathan, just push him over next time. <laughs> you know, and they'll leave you alone. Um, well, here's the thing, right? So love your enemy as you love... Abby's like, I can't believe he's... Anyway. <laughs> but here's the serious point I'm making. is often uh, we ourselves are ready to take the radical line, to love your enemies, to forgive, you know... Those who aren't deserve forgiveness and so on. It's good enough for me, but actually, if it happens to someone I love, then I'm not going to do that. You remember the lady at the, the London bombings? Uh, she was a vicar. And her son, I think it was her son, was killed in the London bombings. And she went on national television to tell the whole world that she couldn't and wouldn't forgive the killer. That's a stronghold right there. That's a secret castle of the enemy. Everything looks okay on the outside, but actually something is more important. Her family, her inter- you know, the people who are closest to us in emotion, uh, in an emotional sense. It's, and actually what that says is her faith isn't... <laughs> if it's true, it's true, right? If it forgive your enemies is the way to go, then forgive your enemies is the way to go every time. If trust the Lord in in everything is the way to go, then you trust him for your provision, not just of yourself, but of your family too. There was a guy in the early church, Cyprian of Carthage. I've got to get one in every week at least. (laughs) Cyprian of Carthage. He was a bishop in the early church. And he had a guy who was a believer. He was a wealthy man who had two Christians who refused to become Christians. Sorry, two children who refused to become Christians. And he made his will out and he left everything to his two Two children who weren't Christians. And Cyprian of Carthage was a bit of a tough nut. And he excommunicated him for nepotism. He said, you've got to make provision for the poor. And you're teaching your two non-Christian children that it doesn't matter what they do with their life, God will look after them. Now, I'm not saying I agree with that. I would perhaps react a little differently if one of you were in that situation. (laughs) But he, he was trying to highlight how that Loyalty to our family, to our loved ones, to our spouse, to a boyfriend or a girlfriend, to a close group of friends can twist our obedience and our faithfulness to God. Do you see the point? Jesus' picture is of a plowman who trying to dig straight furrows. He's walking forwards and you've got to have your eyes fixed on a point so you don't, you know, your, your furrows are straight if you want to plant your crops. And he looks over his shoulder and the plough goes to one side and then to the other. And then this fruitfulness is affected. The whole crop is affected. You can't set your hand to the plough and then look back. God wants to give you enough faith to be obedient for yourself and for the people you love who are closest to you, whoever they are. He wants you to give enough enough faith, no matter what happens to you and what happens to your spouse or your children. Those are the big ones, aren't they? 
You have to have those prayers. Lord, I can handle it. You know, if something happens to me, I can handle it. But if this happens to, you know, this is, I, I wrestle, I, I don't know if, I, I do know, I'm going to say it, but I wrestle whether to say it or not. But if you find yourself in that situation, that, that, that woman I used as an illustration at the beginning, if your, if your spouse were to die, your faith would disappear. There's something not right there. As wonderful and as life-giving as your marriage is, for those of you who are married, as rich and as wonderful and as much as you've given yourself to your spouse, Jesus should be first. And if he's first, he will enrich every other part of your life. And so do that mental exercise. If it's not too painful to go there, where would my faith be if my partner, my spouse weren't around? What would happen? Yes, of course, be, you know, I'm not making a light of it. I'm not trying to make a flippant point here. But seriously, where would it be? After the morning is done, the pain begins to, to fade. Ask yourself that question. God wants to give you enough faith for you and for them and your children and all your loved ones, those you care most about. So there we go. That's, uh, those are four, four things. I guess, having been so kind of challenged by this passage personally, it can kind of leave you a little bit, feeling a little bit dizzy, feeling a little bit unanchored. Is, it, is, it, is, God, is, it, is God willing to upend every part of our lives? Is he, there's nothing safe or sacred to him? Is he willing to turn everything over? Like, uh, you know, to, to flip everything upside down? Doesn't he want us to have, you know, national pride? I think he does, actually. Not in a nationalistic sense, but I think it's okay to be, you know, to think about being British or whatever it is. Does he not want us to have good benefits on our relationships? Does he want us not want us to have duties to other people or to have intimate relationships where we feel torn or pulled this way? And that? No, he wants us to have all those things. I'll come back to the, the first guy who came to Jesus. What that man wanted was a home. Somewhere to lay his head. A place of absolute security and rest. And actually... Jesus is that place. He does want us to have all those things. But they come through a relationship with him. That's, Jesus knew that. He had that with his father. In the security of his relationship with his father, he was able to leave the majesty and the glory and the riches of heaven behind. He to become the person who had nowhere to, to lay his head. Not even like a fox or... Any other kind of animal. He wants to give us all of the goodness that those things give us, but for eternity, in a way that is just better than everything else. He wants to give us a peace and joy and beauty and light and fruitfulness and all the riches of human existence in a changing but changeless way. It's for that love that Jesus left everything. That's the, that love that Jesus, the Jewish man, went to Samaria to preach the gospel. That love that he left heaven. That, for that love, that, that amazing home that he set his face towards Jerusalem. And set his face towards the cross. And went and was crucified for you and for me. For that home, that security, that love. That's what he had and he wants to share it with us. No one else can be our center. <coughs> Compared to him, all else is fleeting. Compared to Jesus, all is temporary. All is a drop in the bucket. 
Everything else, the whole universe is dust on the scales. Heaven, heaven itself will be rolled up like a, a garment. But Jesus will remain the same. Everything else is temporary. Even things that will last for billions of years are temporary compared to him. The skies will be rolled up like a scroll. It says, the stars will fall like withered leaves. All else will wither and fall. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray.